Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Inspection Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. Um, I'm talking today from, uh, from New Orleans. It's been, uh, been a busy couple, of, uh, busy couple of days. I've been, uh, I've been traveling for the last uh, week or so. I'm doing a couple of different things for, uh, for autism spectrum therapies. Um, in some ways, kind of doing my development piece, talking to people about insurance and funding. On the other hand, getting a chance to be uh, a little bit more clinical than I, I probably get to on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, got to spend uh, beginning of last week actually as a, as a speaker at this really cool conference. Got a chance to go up to Oregon um, and speak to about a hundred or so. Uh, people working um, in residential care, people working in uh, adult day programs, um, and was, I thought I was walking into a room of folks uh, primarily working in the, the adult ages and really focusing in on maybe vocational skills, independent living skills in those later years. Um, I, I found a much more diverse group of people. Um, some of them were running uh, foster care programs for young individuals as young as five, six years old. Um, who have a variety of developmental disabilities, including autism. Uh, some of them were uh, working with uh, an even older population than I thought, into their 50s and 60s. Um, and what was really fun and exciting about this, this dialogue and the presentation I got to give is uh, we got to talk a little bit about self-management. And there's a concept that's talked about a few different times in the show, a few different people, and it was a room full of people who either had never heard of self-management and were brand, brand new to it, or people had said, I've heard of that, that sounds interesting, but I know nothing about how to do it, how to start, but I'm willing to learn. So for about an hour and a half, I got to really dig in and really talk about this, the theory, the concept. You know, I couldn't get to that level of detail of this is exactly how you do it, I got so excited by the end of this dialogue, the end of this presentation, for how many people came to me and said, I, where do I find someone to teach me to do this in more depth? How do we work with you? Where can we find uh, books, research, and more on this? They, just, they were soaking it in, really taking all this information. You could tell that there were some really motivated people. And you know, on the one hand, sometimes when you walk to these conferences, you see different uh, groups of people, and, and it's very easy to focus maybe in on what we're not doing because we all know there's plenty that we're not always doing that we can do more as a community to build services and programs. But this is this was different, you know. Rather than seeing all the things they weren't doing, and, and trust me, they told me all the things they weren't doing. I, I walked away with this really hopeful. You know, it gave me this idea of if we get the right information into people's hands, if we really spend some time teaching people, you know, showing them the way, like we really can build better programs. And, and to an extent, you know, working with these guys, you know, better communities. Because that was, I think, the part that I found most exciting 
about the dialogue and the conversation is that, you know, each of these people, their programs were part of a community. They were in the center of the community. And they were actually brainstorming ways to put these programs into the community. So how can we educate people about what we're doing in our group home or in our day program and make it part of the community outings that we do to then raise awareness and support. And so it was, it was so cool to kind of see where their minds were going. It really gave me a lot of excitement and um, a lot of energy, you know, especially going to a, a long week where insurance was going to be a, a, a big topic for me. Uh, gave me a lot more hope as we kind of got started. Um, so I want to get into uh, talking to today's guest. Uh, he's a return guest. He's been with us many times. I'm really excited to have him back uh, talking today about a, a new book he's got out. Um, today we're going to be joined by uh, me, Mark Durand. Um, you guys know he is just known throughout the world as an authority in the area of autism spectrum disorder. Uh, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Southern Florida, St. Petersburg. Um, he's also a member of the Professional Advisory Board for the Autism Society of America, who, if you guys aren't aware, it's got a great conference coming up next month in Indianapolis um, that I, I, I myself am going to go to, and I'm just really excited about it. Mark does great work with them. Uh, he's also a co-editor of the Journal of Positive Behavior Interventions, and has written uh, over 11 books, including abnormal psychology textbooks that are used uh, in more than 1,000 universities worldwide. In addition, he has more than 100 research publications, and some of his big themes include uh, the assessment and treatment of severe behaviors, problems for children and adults with uh, autism spectrum disorders, his parent training. We've talked to him a bunch about uh, his um, treatments for children with sleep problems. Right now, he's got a, a new book out there, which we're excited to talk about, which is called Autism Spectrum Disorder, a Clinical Guide for General Practitioners. Mark, welcome back to the show. Hey, Rob. It's good to be back. I am. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited. You know, as we kind of started chatting real quick before the show, I feel like this book just seems like a, like a huge need. It's, it's something we really need more and more. And so I was hoping to kind of talk about like what, you know, what was the process, what was the motivation to put something like this together, and maybe tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Um, you know, as, as most of your audience knows, the, the prevalence of autism is skyrocketing. Um, anywhere between 1 in 50 or 1 in 68 school children have, have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder right now. So there's a lot of concern about that. However, um, a lot of people who have the diagnosis are, are not being detected, um, maybe seeing clinicians are ready for other problems like depression or anxiety, and clinicians not trained in the field may not recognize that they also might have well, it used to be called Asperger's disorder, um, and what that might mean for treatment. The other part of the, the impetus for this was uh, clinicians who might work with family members, you know, parents, um, siblings, grandparents, who have a child on the spectrum and who may not really understand what these families are going through. Um, and you mentioned sleep problems are <clears throat> highly prevalent in the population. And we've been doing research over the past, couple of decades looking at parents and developed uh, very specific treatments for them for parents who have difficulty with their kids. So it's, 
it, it, it's important for clinicians who may have someone come into their office, for example, and say, gee, I'm depressed or I have anxiety disorders, um, and oh, by the way, I have a child with autism, to understand kind of their unique needs and where they're capable of helping these parents and where they may need to refer out. So it was really trying to address for the general clinician, um, give them an information source so they can understand the disorder, understand what they can do to help, and then also, importantly, when they don't have the expertise and they may need to find someone with more specialized needs. So the book really goes, it's a general introduction, but it goes through <clears throat> things like etiology of the disorder, but all, all through it, it gives clinical tips. So, for example, if you understand the genetics of autism, how would you... Uh, you know, counsel a family member who says, gee, I've got a child with autism. I'm anxious about having another child. What's the likelihood that I'll have another child with autism as well? So it, it helps clinicians, gives them information about genetics, about assessments, about interventions, and about um, helping family members. I really like, you know, when I, when I first looked at this, I thought I was thinking clearly that, you know, when we talk about general practitioners, I was assuming it was more from this perspective of, Maybe you're going to see a child and here's how to understand the early signs of autism, or maybe this is your you know, pediatrician and you have a, a patient who already has autism, but how do you be aware of it? I think it's really great that you've given this. This is what maybe a parent is going through and how maybe you can counsel them. I really wasn't expecting that component to this book. Yeah, and that's, I, I think clinicians miss that point. Um, yeah. They're they're so focused on the child. So, like you said, if a pediatrician is doing an early inter, you know early assessment, they don't understand that if they say your child may have autism, that that can be devastating to some parents because they don't understand it. And we try to help them get inside the heads of these parents to you know and to be more sensitive about what the options are, what the prognosis is, you know what what can we do to help. But it's it's extremely important to understand what these families are going through. They're not just, you know, sitting there listening, oh, they have, you know, inflamed tonsils. This is something else. And it doesn't have to be a terrible diagnosis, but at the same time, parents get scared, and, and yeah. they need to understand that. Yeah. Do you, you know, from a timing standpoint, you know, it's sometimes we want to have these conversations, and, but maybe the audience isn't ready to hear it. You know, do you did you get a sense before putting all this together and writing the books that you know the, the general practitioners out there were wanting this that there was this desire to say you know where they were acknowledging we're just not up to speed on this this issue or this diagnosis? Well, just you know, assessing the number of phone calls I get and emails I get from other professionals who okay. go, "Hey, Mark, you know, you know about autism. Tell me what's going on here," um, and not being able to really lead them in a direction, something written. So if, if there are books written on autism, it's either for family members, um, and sometimes by family members, or it's a you know, very highly technical professional book that only if you're a geneticist you could understand the genetics part, or only if you're a trained behavior analyst would you understand the behavioral part. So I tried to write it in an accessible way so that someone who doesn't have background in the field 
uh, would get a lot of valuable information. But also, you know, I've been told that even people who have a background in the field, some of the areas are new to them. So if you're behaviorally trained, you might not have learned a lot about the etiology of the disorder and why that might be important to understand. So um, it, it's written kind of for everybody who wants to know a little bit more about the disorder. Yeah, that, that, that's, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that because that's what literally was going to be my next question. You know, it, it sounds like you, you tackle these other these other areas. You know, as you know, a behavior analyst like myself, you know, I, I don't know all these other things. Are there other topics in there that, you know, someone like me or maybe there's a speech pathologist out there, people who, who are working day-to-day with kids with autism, are there other things that they would, uh, topics they would get out of this that would make it a good resource or a reference for them? Well, you know, one of the things, you know, I was talking to a group of people who were uh, talking about teaching communication skills, social skills, and, and I, you know, I said to them, I can teach a kid with autism to ask for their favorite toy or food in probably a half hour. <laughs> you know, it, it won't take long to either teach them to point to it or if they can say words, say a word or point to a picture of it. I can do that, and it will take no time at all. I can't teach a kid with autism to say hello to someone walking in the room so easily. And if you understand the nature of the disorder, the fact that for some of these individuals, a person's attention, so their face, their voice, might be aversive. If I say hello to someone when they walk in the room, what are they going to do? They're going to say hello back. So the consequence of saying hello is something I don't want. The consequence of saying, I want soda, please, is getting something I want. And, and that's why we, we have such a hard time teaching social skills, uh, social pleasantries. When you see people who teach them, they're by rote. You know, so they're saying, hi, how are you? I am fine. But there's no feeling there because oftentimes it's a situation they just want to get out of. And yeah. you need to understand that part of the disorder to understand the obstacles you face when trying to teach these skills. Yeah. Something about the way you, you were describing that, it kind of got me thinking about just, you know, it, it almost sounds like it's we're at this stage of us all working together regardless of our disciplines. We're almost like we need, we almost need like one set of language or, or one kind of description to start bringing us all together. Kind of to like your point before is, you know, maybe we know the behavior piece, but maybe we don't know the genetics and understand some of those aspects. Maybe there's a pediatrician out there who understands certain medical things but doesn't understand the behavior piece. That social piece you just described is uh, is something that, it, it, to me, is very basic, but I know so many people take for granted. You know, do you, do you see that this is like kind of laying the foundation for this where maybe we can all maybe speak a little bit more of a, a common tongue and then kind of allow us to be a little bit more collaborative in how we view at, uh, you know, treatments, uh, particularly from that like, coordination of care point of view. Well, that's what I was hoping, and I think, you know, we're at the stage where all of these things start to become integrated, you know, so that it it, it really is a field that's just about to bloom. I mean, i, I give you one example. Some of yeah. the early intervention work, um, like the Denver um, um, Early Start program, some of the research on, on very young children shows that if you do early intensive behavioral intervention that focuses on social skills, 
um, they improve their skills. So they, they make eye contact better. They may engage with other people better. But they also look in one study at their brain functioning. And what they found was in the kids that got this early intervention and who made these positive changes, the way their brain worked looked more like kids without autism than kids with autism who didn't make these cha- have these changes. And I, you know, what we're what we're getting to the point is is you know yes we need to understand the functioning of the brain and genetics and all those things, but we're not going to be anywhere near finding you know a genetic cure or a, a way to fix the brain with medication, but we are going to be able to change the way the brain works through behavioral intervention. And behaviorists need to understand that, and medical people need to understand that. And that's just, you know, one area that I think is things are starting to come together and people are starting to understand this. Um, So if we can understand then what was it about what we did that regularized the, the functioning of this child's brain, then we could focus on those kinds of interventions versus some other things we might be doing that may not be helping. So, you know, I think, but I think, you know, as as we were saying, this needs to be translated. You can't read a genetics article and understand it. I mean, it it took me a while to teach myself um, all the basics I needed to understand. But once you can understand it, then you need a translation and you know, uh, another example, um, people are wondering why it is that older parents were, are more likely to have kids with autism. Well, mm-hmm. what, we, what we understand now is that some forms of autism, and there are many forms of autism, some forms are caused by what's called de novo mutations. And what that means is, is that the parents don't have a gene for autism. But what happens as you get older is you get exposed to chemicals, um, you get exposed to other toxins, and it changes the genetic makeup of the sperm and eggs. And that then can cause a mutation. And so even though nobody in your family has autism, even though neither of the parents have genes for autism, they can still contribute genetic material that may cause this kind of developmental disorder. So the the genetics of it is complicated, but it also helps explain why, you know, the risk increases for older adults. There's a study that just came out today. If you, if you, um, from California, uh, people who worked in the fields um, uh, picking um, different crops and exposed to pesticides, that their increase, the likelihood of having a child with autism increased by like two thirds, and that's yeah. in part because those toxins are affecting the genetic material that they carry around with them. So understanding that may help us, you know, look at things like exposure to pesticides, exposure, you know, is it plastic that we drink water out of? You know, looking at those things as as potential causes, but trying to translate that, you know, into what does that mean clinically? Well, it means if you're 45 years old or 50 years old, you're at increased risk, and this is why. Um, so yeah. that that's what I think we're trying to you know do is really start to you know to translate the, this complicated information into more practical um, pieces of information. And I think what what you said, which kind of resonates for me, is 
it almost makes sense for us to, as clinicians, to therefore present the outcomes of what it is we're doing in more practical terms as well. Because the way you were talking about the Denver model and the way the brain functions, and, and now you have something that is a little bit more, maybe it's not understood, but maybe it can be something we translate to be a little bit more understood. You know, so much of what we do in, in behavior analysis that I know sometimes we criticize for it, sometimes it's just a single case design or we're maybe looking at um, particularly like how many goals did a child meet, but the, the number of goals a child meet really match up to the brain functioning. And, and maybe it's a way for us to maybe look at how we present this is the benefit of what my early intervention program is, this is the benefit of the self-management program, and to more, um, to more of a terminology that people out there can really understand and therefore get behind and support. Yeah, and I think it's going to take a while for people to come up to speed. I mean, I'm, I look at people who are, you know, who are behavior analysts, and I've had this discussion with people who are coming up with a licensing exam, and I said, being licensed as a behavior analyst doesn't mean you understand the disorder because there's nothing about the curriculum in most of these programs that will teach you this information. Um, often you have to get it on your own. And, and similarly, you know, I sit on panels, grant panels, with geneticists and neurobiologists who don't have a clue about interventions. And, you know, in their mind, they're looking for what's that next pill that we can come up with and what's that, you know, how can we affect cell development? But yeah. they don't understand that, you know, that we already have terrific interventions that for many individuals can really help them. So that's, again, kind of, that's why some of these kinds of translations across areas become important at this point in our in our stage because we do have a lot to offer each other and and this is not a competition it's not us versus them it's you know we all have things to contribute in and it's good to understand that yeah you touched upon this idea of you know there's the science of, of behavior analysis, uh, behavior analysis and autism, and I, and I feel like that's a debate I've heard a lot more about recently. It's, you know, I, I've seen presentations where the, the question is, does one of the A's in ABA really now stand for autism? Um, and on the flip side, I've had, you know, in-depth conversations about people, that, you know, just because you have a license, as you said, doesn't mean you're necessarily trained in, um, in you know, working with an individual with autism. You know, is that... Is that something that, you know, you feel like we're making headway on where we're starting to have more of a happy balance with, at least within our field, or is that something that we still really have a lot more work to do? I think we still have a lot more work to do. I I'm not convinced it's any different than when I was in the field 30-something years ago. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I worked with a young girl in the late 70s, and she would wring her hands, she had trouble walking, and she didn't make eye contact. So we were trying to get her to stop her wringing her hands, kind of flapping them together. We were trying to work on a plan to help her with her walking, and also had a plan for helping her with her eye contact. And over a course of months, her eye contact improved, her walking got worse, and her hand wringing didn't change. And we kind of patted ourselves on the back and said, well, at least we made improvements in eye contact. And years later, I realized this girl had Rett's disorder. Rett's disorder occurs mostly among girls. It 
it results in hand wringing. Um, it also results in seizures, which will make it make walking more difficult and make it more difficult for them to walk over time. But they also plateau and improve at some point in time in their social interactions. So we essentially did nothing for this girl because we didn't understand her disorder. Um, and that the eye contact improvement probably had nothing to do with what we were doing. It had to do with the nature of how these, this disorder changes over time. So I think, you know, those kinds of things don't get taught in the traditional curriculum yeah. for behavioral interventions. And, you know, I, I just was up in, in Canada and met with Dorothy Griffiths, who just wrote a book on genetic syndromes and behavioral um, interventions. And, again, it's a, it's a way to kind of say there are different disorders here that have different consequences, and it may affect how you intervene with them. And so it's, we're just beginning to kind of put these things together. Um, there are not too many of those kinds of books out there, and hopefully, you know, this is going to start the, the conversation. Yeah. You know, kind of in the same vein of starting this conversation and thinking about what you said, you know, even the, the thought of, of ABA where we feel like we really, you know, I feel like when you get an education on autism and some of those things, you maybe you understand autism, maybe you understand some of the subtleties, the difference between Rett's or maybe Angelman syndrome, um, but it seems like we always get so much of like a DTT, discrete child teaching approach, um, and, and sometimes the ABA training sometimes seems to be very kind of streamlined, not just from the standpoint of where uh, the education is coming from, but maybe from the practical experiences young behavior analysts are getting, and Things like you know, things like the the sleep problems book that you have, or or some of the different interventions that I know you've written about when it comes to severe problem behavior, where people maybe don't fully understand the subtleties of the functional communication training and how you do SCT. You know, is is that something that this book start at, starts to address, or or maybe uh, start dialogues on? And if not, are there are there places that people can go to for that? Well, certainly the book um, focuses on the optimistic parenting work that we've done. So, you know, again, this is optimistic parenting um, is is really adding cognitive behavioral intervention into parent education. So not only asking, you know, what's your child doing in the supermarket, what happened before, what happened afterwards, but also what are you thinking? And if you're thinking, oh, my goodness, people looking at me, they're staring at me, they're judging me as a parent, I might give in and say, here, have a cookie while he's crying and screaming. And understanding that that's not a lack of education. The parent knows I shouldn't be doing this. But because I have these interfering thoughts, I'm anxious. I want to get out of here. And so I want this tantrum to stop. That's cognitive behavior therapy is, is not taught in behavior, anal- you know, behavior analysis. Yet, I have to tell you, I've met with hundreds of behavior analysts who go, this is exactly what we need. Um, but it's not taught to, to them because that's kind of antithetical to what some behavior analysts believe. So that, that in, in woven in this book are, are some of those things. But, you know, I had to write a book on sleep disorders because there was nothing out there that talked about, as you mentioned, the subtleties here that, 
for example, kids who don't go to bed at night, who cry at bedtime, they do it for different reasons. Sometimes their circadian clock is off and they're not tired at all. Sometimes it's more like a behavior problem. Um, sometimes their schedule is just off. And so it, it's not just a question of reinforcing him for getting into bed. If their clock is saying it's really noon instead of 11 o'clock at night, and if you understand the difference between them, you would approach it differently. So, that, so I think practitioners in the field are, are you know, really eager for that information, but they often have to kind of get it on their own and kind of continue to learn over time about the different um, things that they, they're um, working with. Yeah, it, it struck me, especially recently, talking to so many different people um, in, in lots of different cities and states, it, it seems to me that like, people are really confused sometimes where to go next. You know, they've got this, they've got this box really well defined, but it's one of those situations where you don't know what you don't know, and they, it, it's very hard to figure out. Well, where do I go? How do I find this next piece of information to solve this problem? You know, I, I feel like I get exposed to a greater degree just hosting the show, you know, talking to people like you. It's go, oh great, I now have some things about sleep, and I have some ideas and some tips, and I can know. Um, when I've exhausted, maybe where I can go next to try and get more information before maybe needing to make a referral. Um, but I think it's really hard for, for especially younger behavior analysts to know where to go and know where to find those things. Well, I agree, and it, it's only made worse by the preponderance of competing, you know, approaches and books. Um, you know, we, I talked about early in behavioral intervention. And each group who does it does it slightly differently, um, kind of, you know, advertises it as their approach. And what we really need is not one more approach. What we really need is to say, can we distill down what pivotal response training does, for example, or the Denver model does, and these other uh, models that have research, you know, showing that it can be very effective, Instead of picking one or the other, what is it about them that they have in common, and, and what are the things that really work? And I think that's part of the problem that we have, is that there are so many competing programs. I mean, every time I talk about something, someone goes, oh, but did you ever hear of the Smith model? And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's another model. It has some similarities. Uh-huh. What I'm trying to talk about is the commonalities. I'm, I'm not trying to sell, you know, there's no Durand model out there. Nothing has my sure. name on it, you know, and, and that's because what I'm trying to do is find out what about what we're doing works, and so what's the essence of what we're doing, and not sell a program and not sell a model. Right. And so that's, you know, that I think is, is one of the problems that we face as a field, is that there yeah. are so many people out there trying to sell their approach, and, and sell it, I mean it in generic terms. Sometimes it is for money, and sometimes it's just, convincing people that my approach is the best as opposed to finding out what do all these things have in common, you know, and what are the parts that we really need and then how do we fit them to the unique needs of every child. Yeah. And it's translated. I mean, I interview people all the time, and I feel like the most common question I get is, what's your, what is your approach? And I kind of chuckle because I always feel like I give – 
to me, it's a great answer because sometimes I think it's a bad answer where, you know, I don't really think I would define my approach in any one thing. It's, I believe in the science of ABA, and I, you know, you look at these problems and what's the issue and identify solutions using the, the principles. It's, it seems sometimes, sometimes, you know, even as clinicians, when we go into the field looking for jobs or looking for positions, you know, we, we get stuck with, oh, I want this model, or I want to do PRT, or I want to do verbal behavior, and we get more stuck on the label than we do on the, the application of these principles. Right, and I, you know, you, all you have to do is look to medicine, who I think they get criticized sometimes, but they're really good at ignoring models. You don't go yeah. to a physician if you have, you know, a sinus infection and say, I heard that you do this kind of approach to sinus infections. You hopefully go to a doctor who will understand the nature of your sinus infection, give you the options, you know, well, if we give you medication, here are the pros and cons. Um, maybe there's something that, that requires some surgery, or maybe, you know, it just requires time, but they're not there with one approach. That they're, you know, they're saying, well, I was trained in how to do science inspection by, you know, John Smith, and, and this is just the best way, I think. It's, it's, it's a more nuanced understanding of the nature of the problem, and that's what we have to do with the people that we work with. Is, you know, there's the a famous line, if you know one child with autism, you know one child with autism. You know, yeah. that, that doesn't tell me anything, um, and I'm not going to then take an approach and apply it to a child with autism, I'm going to say, what's this child need? Um, what, are the, what are the skills they need? What are the problems that they face? And then how can I take, as you know, you alluded to, the skills that I have, a number of different approaches, and put them together to make a package that this child needs? And unfortunately, parents are, have a hard time with that. They would, you know, many of them would just prefer to say, do this one approach because it seems to help my right. child. And I, as a parent, I would understand that completely. That's what I would want. You know, I don't want you to give me a lot of information. I just want you to give me the, the pill that works. And so it, it's hard for us to say, well, it's not just a discrete trial, and it's not just going to be this. We're going to use parts of this and part of that. And, um, and you know, it's not sexy, but it may be the best approach and, and kind of getting clinicians away from that, you know, named model uh, is, is difficult, and in part because of the audience. Uh, but, you know, they yeah. have my child in your program, and it works, so every child should be in this program. It's like, okay, maybe. Um, but yeah. maybe the program needs to modify itself, too. So that's, that will be the debate in the field for the next decade or so. Wow. Well, let's, let's take a quick break, play a couple commercials, and we'll come back and talk more with Mark Grant. Be right back, everybody. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. 
One company, one team with one mission to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host or today's guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. Joined today by B. Mark Durand. Um, you know, one of the things kind of going back to the book that I was curious about is um, if you touched upon the, the new changes in the DSM-5 um, and uh, what kind of implications uh, all of that is having um, in terms of diagnosing it about it. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the, the reasons for the timing of the book uh, when it came out was right after the DSM-5 came out because, you know, I knew there would be a number of important issues that clinicians would now need to face again. Um, as, as probably many of your listeners know, uh, DSM-5 combined the disorders, autistic disorder or autism, with Asperger's disorder um, and took out uh, what was called childhood disintegrative disorder, which was an a autism-like disorder that uh, where a child would kind of develop in a typical fashion for the first couple of years and then regress. And what research was finding was that, you know, the progression of autism is not an either-or. So some kids will start to develop typically for a few months and then regress. Some will um, really not develop symptoms um, until they're three or four years old. And it didn't make sense to kind of separate them out as different disorders. Um, they, they also included a new disorder called social pragmatic communication disorder, which is not part of the autism disorder. And this is, this is a big change, and it has a number of people worried, and the, you know, the real question will be what effect does this have. Social pragmatic communication disorder is basically um, the child has some of the social um, problems uh, that kids with autism will have. So either they're, they're in, in their verbal ability not being able to speak or understand you know, social cues, uh, not, not interacting, being able to interact with others in an appropriate way, but they don't have kind of the restricted repetitive behaviors that's now required in autism. So they don't line things up or they don't have interests, um, you know, like learning train schedules and or knowing every kind of dinosaur. So they don't have those unusual interests or behaviors, but they have the social problems. And, yeah. and one, it's, it's important to understand that because some of those kids were, were placed in, in the diagnosis of um, pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. The problem comes in um, is when you're looking for services. And, and this is one of the big issues that the DSM-5 tried to address. Um, and there's a, there's a line in the DSM-5 that says, if this person previously received an, a, dis, a diagnosis of autism, 
uh, autistic disorder then retain that diagnosis. And the reason why they did that was basically political. Um, if your child had a diagnosis of autistic disorder and now has a diagnosis of social pragmatic communication disorder, they may not be able to receive the same services from schools or insurance. And so people became extremely alarmed. I'm going to lose my diagnosis and then I'm going to lose funding or I'm going to lose you know, the, the more involved involvement with teachers. And, and that's a very real concern. And I don't think it's been resolved quite yet. On the flip side of this, and another really interesting aspect that I do discuss in the book, and I warn clinicians about, is that some people who had a diagnosis of Asperger's disorder are not happy that they have lost that diagnosis. They, they're not happy that that label is gone because unlike other people, um, we, you know, we use people first language. We, say, we don't say a depressive. We say a person with depression. And the idea there is to say you're a person first. And you may also have this other issue, but you're a person first. Well, many people with Asperger's disorder say, I don't want to be called a person with Asperger's disorder. This is who I am. This is me. This is, this is how I define myself. And if I lose that label, I'm pretty angry about that. And so it, the book tries to point out, you know, the need to be sensitive to these issues because they're, they're clearly very different among different people. There are parents you know, who, who you know, don't want the label. There are parents that do want the label. Um, there are parents that get angry at you if you talk about um, the latest is combating autism or curing autism. Well, I don't want my child cured. My, my child is just different. And so yeah. I tried to bring up in the book all of those political as well as, well as clinical issues that arise from the change. The, the other, the final important part um, is that Combining those diagnoses, autism and Asperger's disorder, helps uh, clinicians be better at uh, diagnosing it, makes it easier. At the same time, it also blurs the real distinctions. I mean, the difference between a child who doesn't talk, doesn't make eye contact, flips up you know, papers 24 hours a day, and uh, someone who you know, can ha carry on a conversation but just doesn't have the social skills maybe have a restricted interest. They're very different individuals, probably would, um, related to different, inter, you know, different causes of their, of their uh, diagnoses. And putting them together as a researcher is not helpful at all. Um, and so I read articles now where it says, well, they were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and I sit there and go, I don't know what the heck that means. You know, yeah. are they verbal? Are they not verbal? Do they, you know, do they have these... Un usual interest or is it unusual behaviors and it's it's a fairly useless diagnosis in that sense that it it doesn't help you understand the disorder so it's it has caused a great deal of concern um, and again proponents will say it makes it easier to diagnose people at the same time it, when you talk about what's called clinical validity does it give me more information about the individual the answer is no it doesn't um, in some ways, it gives me less information about the individual, and, and therefore, a label, that label, tells me nothing about how I should intervene. It tells me generally that they're going to have some kind of social problems and some kind of restricted or repetitive behaviors, but
but I now have to do my homework and I have to you know find that out. So the the changes you know were massive in that sense, and and you can understand the goal was make it make the the diagnosis more reliable, but but the the jury's still out in what practical changes will occur and what problems people will run into because of the change. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear about the, that, I guess, the little subtext or the little note about um, the, that social pragmatic disorder because I, I hadn't heard that about the if the individual previously had an autism infection disorder. So that's really good to hear. I mean, I wasn't aware of that piece because for the exact reason you mentioned, you know, that could change someone's access to services, you know, dramatically just overnight. Absolutely. And, and you know, that may be more accurate, but you know, I'm, to give me an example, I was in a classroom in California a few months ago. In fact, my niece works in California in, in an autism class. <clears throat> and there were 10 children in the autism class. And I said to her after being there for 15 minutes, I said, five of these kids have autism. And three of them don't, you know, and five don't. And she she was looking at me, and I said, you know, watch this kid. Here's a kid who's connecting numbers and the dots, and he made a picture of a a skull, and that was what he was tracing. He turned to the kid next to him and said, look, a skull. And the kid didn't look. Um, And then he kind of picked up the paper and and started dancing with it. It's like a skeleton, look. I said, a child with autism... A, doesn't have imaginative play. B, wouldn't care that the kid next to him liked that. I said, that child has behavior problems. Um, he acts in unusual ways, but he doesn't have autism, at least not how we would classically diagnose somebody. And, and I'm sure there was some pressure on people to put this child in this class because it had a higher teacher-to-student ratio. Um, and they were better trained, and so that's that's our problem right now. Is um, there are there are children receiving the diagnosis for school purposes or uh, treatment purposes who may not fit the di- you know the diagnosis, and yeah. then there's the dilemma. You want to give services to all kids who need it, um, and it's not quite fair that children with autism, you know, may be getting more services than other kids and who have similar needs. Yeah. I mean, you heard, it was a few years ago, there was that L.A. Times article and story about autism and, and how it was um, being, how it impacted the community. And they did like four parts. There was you know, looking at the causes. They were looking at its impact on schools, the regional center, and I can't remember the fourth. And I remember they interviewed a number of people who were, you know, giving, who were diagnosing kids and none of them anonymously said, you know, they look at two kids. And they say, you know, this is like maybe a borderline late uh, diagnosis, or maybe it's maybe it's not so borderline. But they they admit it, noting that okay, I'm more likely to get a diagnosis where I know services are going to come with them, and autism has services, and there's all these other diagnoses that don't. So uh, right. I, it's it's very I don't know, it's it's, it's very sad when you think of that bigger picture. It's, it makes it very challenging, I think, for us. Yeah, it is. You know, you, you were talking about diagnosis, and and we were talking about causes before. And the the thing I was curious about, if you talk about it in the book, is you touch about uh, at all about the controversy um, about vaccines, and do you touch on it from a 
causes point of view, and then you also touch upon it from that standpoint of, by the way, uh, you may have parents who maybe don't have a kid with autism, but maybe have some concerns about vaccines and what it means. Um, do, you, do you go into either of those things? Yeah, I, I, I go into both. And, you know, the, from the first perspective, all we can say is study after study after study has shown that as a group, kids are not more likely to have autism if they've been vaccinated. Um, originally, the concern was the preservative, thimerosal, which is kind of a lead-based preservative. The concern was that vaccines had this preservative in it, and that was what was triggering autism in, in children. And very large studies that looked at um, the use of this preservative over time and, and countries that removed the preservative saw that despite the fact that preservative was removed, the numbers of kids diagnosed still increased and was increasing over time. So that, those kind of studies make it pretty clear that the preservative doesn't seem to be the case. Then the argument moved to the number of vaccinations, and you can kind of look at numbers over time. You know, when, when I was a child, we, we received vaccinations for, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, and pretty much that was it. Um, now their kids are being vaccinated for many more illnesses. And, and there's a concern that if you, again, look at over time as the number of uh, different vaccines increased, the prevalence of autism increased. But in, in really good studies, especially in Europe, uh, where they study these, they can study the whole population because everybody's in socialized medicine and they have records, really good records. There doesn't seem to be any correlation. With the possible exception, there's a, there's a mitochondrial disorder that may be triggered by this, and, but it's extremely rare. Um, and so the, on the flip side, what we're seeing now, in fact, I, we can see it in Florida right now, is the number of cases of whooping cough is increasing. And why is that? It's because kids aren't being vaccinated. And the, the dangers of not being vaccinated far, far outweigh the dangers of being vaccinated. And, and children, even children who um, are getting vaccinated, may be exposed to kids who are not and may start to contract before their time of vaccine um, these, these um, different disorders. So there's a, there's a concern about not being vaccinated. Um, so that's, that's in the book, and I, and I try to lay out, you know, what parents are going to be concerned about um, what are the, some of the facts? What are, what are some realistic concerns? Um, and, and so that, that's in there. Outstanding. Yeah, I, I have to assume that's got to be a, a little bit of a, a tougher section to write because I know there, you know, it, it feels like we've become much more aware of what research was done and, and the validity of it all, but it still feels like a very controversial topic. Um, when I just speak to the average person. And well, and, and we live in a, a very black and white world, you know. Yeah. So, there, you know, as we know in politics, um, you're either for me or against me, um, and if you're against me, I hate you. Um, and the same thing is true in medicine and in, and in psychology and psychiatry, that people will get online and read things, and if it supports their view, they become, you know, 
adamant that this is this is you know makes sense to me instead of and what we try to do is make people better consumers and, and again that's kind of what the book is trying to do for clinicians is make them better consumers here's some of the information we know here's what we don't know here's how to make these these decisions in an informed way and not just saying yes it is or no it's not um, and yeah. and so that you know we 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 continue and, and because of the internet and social media, we, we kind of are getting worse at this instead of better. Well, um, you know, we're, we're coming down to the end of the show and, and running out of time. You know, any, any final thoughts for us? I mean, you, you cover so many different diverse things every time you're here. But any just kind of closing thoughts for, for our audience today? Well, um, some of the things that we're finding is that we have really good interventions. Um, yeah. Clearly, the early intervention, uh, we're, we're better able to identify children very early on. Um, that's great. Um, we have really good interventions that we know can help many kids, um, even for older kids or even adults. We have uh, lots of interventions now that we know can really assist people. I think what we still need is, and you touched on this before, is access to, to services. Um, you know, I talk about when our new, new work with optimistic parenting, and I get 20 people coming up to me going, where can I get this? I'm like, well, <laughs> it, it's hard right now. And I think um, what I would like to see is more money spent on access to services and, and supporting kind of the widespread use it's in education. It's called scaling up. How do I take this program that works in this school or five schools and how do I get them to 100 schools and 500 schools? And, and it would be nice if, if there was more funding available to do that because, like I said, we have good interventions, but the question becomes, how do I get this information out? How do I do massive training? How do I um, kind of disseminate all this information? And just, in my case, writing a couple of books and doing a couple of talks is not going to change the world. Um, it's, yeah. It's going to take a larger intervention to do that, and I think that's where we need to be focusing on is how to how to get this you know, information out to wider and wider audiences. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know this you know the book we've been spending so much time talking about. I mean, I, I, I really value you know, what you put together and what you put forth. I mean, I'm talking to you. I kind of wish I had spoken to you last week versus this week. You know, I just you know. Spent uh, my weekend at a, at a friend's wedding, and you know now everyone's at the age where where everyone's starting to have kids, and you know it was I was very surprised to see for the first time at the first wedding and and I think ever how many questions I got about autism. I'm the only person mm-hmm. in the group who works with kids with autism, and so many of the things you touched upon today came up in conversation, and they didn't need a BCBA answering that question. They don't even truly know what a BCBA is. They think of me more as an autism person than a behavior analyst, and the answers you're giving and the guidance you're giving I think is going to be so valuable that to me it seems like such a great reference, not just to that general practitioner, but maybe to just curious people. I know a lot of, I come across a lot of curious people every day, and this kind of feels like a great resource to get them started about if you really want to kind of get a little bit of a broader perspective on everything this seems like a great place to start too so thank you so much for 
by putting this together, I think I think you are sharing the great dialogue, and uh, I appreciate you being with us today to to talk it through. Well, thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. I always enjoy getting a chance to talk to you. Thanks. Hopefully, if you're in Indianapolis at uh, the conference, we uh, we we get to chat face to face versus over the phone. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Take care. My pleasure. Uh, well, that's it for today, guys. I hope uh, everyone uh, was really able to get a lot of this. You know, uh, Mark is always just such a great guest because of all the different things he covers every single time he's here. And even the things about just, you know, the science of ABA and whether or not a BCBA is an autism expert or an ABA expert, I think those are really valuable because these are the types of questions that you yourself can ask. You know, understanding the differences between using a model versus people who do say, hey, I apply the science and individualize it. Those are things that, um, you know, parents don't always know to ask. And so, I, I, as I said, I just always love the different directions we get to go whenever, whenever Mark is here. As always, if you have questions, please let us know. More info at autismtherapy.com. Talk to us on Facebook at Autism Therapy. Our Facebook page is a great resource in that way. Hope you guys have a fabulous week, fabulous weekend, and we're going to talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode, or visit our archive to listen to and download previous shows.